join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Welcome, Hipstorians, to another episode. We will be dealing with some more recent history, you might say, and with a person that is a very powerful, moving story to tell, uh, one that certainly isn't easy, one that has been fraught with trials and tribulations. I think I'll have to let uh, Maria Cahill tell you the rest and we'll get right in there. Here comes Maria. You're very welcome to The Hipstorians. Thank you. Good to be here. So you've launched a book um, very recently. The book is called Rough Beast and it, it details very vividly your experience of the last Last well half your life, I think it's fair to say that you've had to had to cope with this. Certainly, you've been courageous and brave. I'm not sure, you know, I would have had as much courage and resilience. I mean, you have a tremendous amount of resilience. I, I will absolutely say that you should be very proud of you know yourself and being a, a true to yourself. You know, integrity. For our listeners that are far and wide, they are everywhere from America, Australia, India, you know, New Zealand, wherever you can think of. So I suppose let's bring ourselves into the time and a picture of the Belfast that you experienced your teenage years in. What was that like? Well, first of all, you're very kind. Um, a lot of people talk about bravery, but actually, I think I'm probably just stubborn. So uh, it's important to say, I think that a lot of people, when they find themselves in a situation, just react to it. And that, you know, really, that's uh, the bulk of what I've done. I grew up in West Belfast in 19, well, I was born in 1981. So 1981 was a pretty pivotal time in Irish history. It was the year of the hunger strike. And in fact, the 1981 hunger strike, I was born three days before Bobby Sands died. You know, my entry into the world, and I say this in the book, it was a troubled entry at a turbulent time, you know, um, even to the point where leaving the labour ward to go back to the house, which should be a relatively happy time for parents, was was happy for my mother, but also fraught with difficulty because there were riots all over the road. It was difficult enough for people to actually, difficult for my father to get down to visit, difficult for my mother to get home with a, a new baby. So that gives you a bit of an indication as to the area in which I was living. I grew up in an estate called Andersonstown in West Belfast. My It was a place called Stockman, so slightly more middle class than what my grandparents' estates would have been. They grew up in both Ballamurphy and Turf Lodge, which would have been working class housing, big sprawling housing estates. The housing itself, when it was originally built, was substandard. People had to live in pretty um, crappy conditions. And my grandfather, my father's father, Frank, was a community, a kind of a self-styled community worker before community workers existed. I feel like he, he worked very hard to try and improve conditions for local people there alongside a local priest called, De called Des Wilson. In terms of my teenage years then, I grew up in conflict like everybody else who, who grew up in Northern Ireland around that time. You know, the late 80s was a particularly fraught time. I have very clear memories of that, even though, I mean, I, I suppose I've really had to look at this, particularly when writing the book. I think we all have a tendency when you live in a situation like that to try to minimise it or downplay it or normalise it. So things like helicopters flying 24-7, you know, I laugh now at it because my daughter notices a helicopter when it flies overhead, but it was so normal for us that we didn't. And in actual fact, when demilitarization started to come in and the, the noise of the helicopters went from a roar to a lull and they weren't out 
you know, I found it very difficult to sleep, like a lot of other people who had got used to the wearing, you know, of the rotors, like white noise. You know, that that's a very kind of, I mean, I, I'm laughing about it. Actually, it probably wasn't very healthy for an awful lot of people. And it's a very simple thing. But, you know, just a helicopter, a chopper not being overhead all the time. It was very noticeable. British soldiers on the streets in your garden acting as if they owned the place. Things like that. I think we just all kind of glossed over as if this is part and parcel of life. Um, Obviously, then we have paramilitaries who were active. The IRA was active. My great uncle Joe was the founder of the provisional IRA, one of the founders of the provisional IRA and was chief of staff at, a, at one point. And, you know, we had the INLA, we had the UDA, which weren't prescribed actually incredibly until the early 90s, I think around 1992. And we also had cover names, UFF, UVF, you know, so lo- both loyalist and Republican paramilitaries were killing people right throughout. In actual fact, I call it a cacophony of mayhem. You know, really, that's what it was. You know, you turned the news on on any given day, someone was dead. I knew people who were murdered. I had friends whose parents were murdered. You know, my own family were under attack. My grandparents lived with the state security gate at the bottom of their stairs so they locked themselves in every night in case we were targets my uncle was shot on a milk float during the provisional IRA official IRA feud in the 1970s and survived he was later jailed um for activity and he lost his compensation bid um he was rumored to be the finance director of the IRA so that's what happened there I had another uncle Sean who had a bomb placed under his black taxi um, and it fell off, the detonator fell off, it exploded behind the taxi, he was very lucky. I had a, a great aunt who had a pipe bomb thrown through her window by loyalists and almost actually lost a leg, she was very badly injured as a result, you know. So I had cousins and uncles who were in jail or on the run, so I came from a, a very staunchly Republican extended family, but my parents really didn't discuss politics in the house. Look, you know, it was all around you. I do remember asking what the words I, or the letters IRA meant. They were on a, a gable wall when I was very young and being told they stood for I ran away just because my mother didn't want to get into the conversation of it. And, you know, people did say in the late 1960s that that's what people did say. So she obviously it was the first thing that she came to in the 1980s that she could try and describe without having to explain the family history, you know, um, and I didn't actually find out anything around republicanism or family even though you kind of consumed it daily until probably around primary seven I think when I found out that my uncle Joe um, had been in jail for murder in 1942. That was an interesting case Um, if you ever get a chance to check it out. He was jailed along with six others for the murder of a policeman Constable Murphy in 1942 and they were sentenced to death and when I was looking back at this stuff, I mean, obviously I knew the case, but I wanted to go back and read things like the court records. And um, it turned out then that the Pope at the time and Eamon de Valera actually campaigned for clemency for those people who had been sentenced to death. And Joe was one of them. And he actually spent a long time in the condemned cell with a man named Todd Mindems, who was eventually hanged. Um, and Joe and the rest of them then got, got reprieved to time in jail. And then he eventually got released. You know, and then was jailed subsequently again in Portlaoise and in other prisons and went on hunger strike at a different point in time for conditions. So quite a, a heady upbringing into this whole cacophony of conflict um, without even realising that, that, you know, this is a, a thing that other people didn't have to contend with, I think. So look, I'm always wary of not dramatizing it but equally I think at this point in time it probably isn't helpful to minimize it either it is what it is you know that that's where I grew up and other people didn't have that experience a lot of other people had worse well it was traumatic you know nonetheless and there's no escaping that and I you know up until the age of 12 my great-grandfather uh, lived in Portadown um it would have been my step-great-grandfather so we were growing up in a Catholic Protestant home you know I grew up my grandparents and all that but we used to drive up all the time and I felt it as a, a young boy and you know the anxiety uh, rising up in me when the car be pulled in by the soldiers you know simple things so like that's very very small and minute but you were surrounded by trauma and your parents would have been carrying around an awful lot of trauma as well and trying obviously trying to protect you uh, from all that type of thing well I think yeah maybe you know my mother was a primary school principal so obviously and actually the schools that she was working in so she, she studied in England and then came back to live here so yes, I mean, I suppose in their own childhood, 
right through they had their own trauma too on the other side my grandmother my mother's mother was from Cork who had been moved up to Ardoyne her father was in the Irish army and he left the Irish army and joined the British army during the war and they incredibly lived in Estale Gardens in Ardoyne you know and that right through the world war she was evacuated out to Lurgan and brought back but then she moved to Turf Lodge when she met my my grandfather and married and you know their kids weren't political but they were beaten nonetheless you know they on one occasion she actually had to go to the local barracks we had a, a barracks at the top of turf lodge we had two actually one called fort jericho and one called pegasus where the army basically moved in and stole the land off of local people and built their their forts there so you know on one occasion she had to go up looking for one of her sons who had been taken by the paras just off the street as a teenager and, and beaten quite badly and she received a, an apology from the sergeant as a result that's not in the book but there were things like that which you now remember looking back on one, another occasion my mother tells a story about a soldier who had threatened to take her into the back of a jeep and rape her you know these were kind of normal things for all of those people growing up you know 60s 70s 80s and right through but again you know for us that was completely normal. And like I, I said to Brent O'Connor, who's an RTE presenter, I had been on a programme with him years ago, I think around, two, was 2014, November 2014, where he had asked about, you know, conflict. And I was saying, oh, yeah, no, no, but you know, it didn't really affect us. You know, so I had completely just, because it was all so normal and I just thought that this is, an, I didn't really feel like I had a right maybe to speak about it. I was I had a right to talk about my own case, but in terms of childhood and growing up and all of that, I probably hadn't sat down to try to dissect it. And I think the book allowed me to do that, you know. Yeah, you would have absorbed um all, you know, the Republican ideas. You, you know, you did become politicized yourself. Mm-hmm. You did want to uh, to be part of the cause. And can we tell the li- listeners a little bit about what stage in life that you felt you were drawn to do this and in what capacity then uh, you worked within the, the Republican movement? Well, I joined Sinn Féin Youth because I came across a very energetic man called Owen O'Brien, who's now a Sinn Féin TD. At that point in time, he was the head of um, Sinn Féin Youth. And Sinn Féin Youth then rebranded itself over Sinn Féin Youth. It took on the Irish um, phrase, but their their logo at the time, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but it was a, a glass milk bottle with a, a lily, Easter lily coming out of the top of it to make it look like a petrol bomb. It may have actually been a bomb at one point, like a black round thing. I know there were a few logos knocking around and it caused an awful lot of controversy at the time and rightly so, I suppose. But young people generally tend to be more militant anyway. You know, in, in every political movement and our kind of, you know, I joined Sinn Féin Youth at the age of 16, I think. Just going, you know, you I went to it was asked to go to a meeting, then I went to another meeting and another, and before long you were just regularly attending these meetings, a small number of kids, but things like demonstrations outside place barracks, which then would have turned into a melee when the, the RUC opened up and came out with their their rat change, you know. Things like that were quite exciting. The kids who had grown up effectively on the street, you know, riots. I talk about this in the book. Riots were exciting to be on the periphery of. It was a almost, people talk about recreational riot. And, you know, when you have a load of young people around who don't remember in those type of days, there weren't anything and there still aren't. Generally, things like nighttime cafes where young people could go to youth clubs, they did operate, but they operated within their own kind of wee silos. And they were for much younger kind of kids. By the time you got to 16, 17 and 18, you weren't going off to the gym or anything else. Your your recreation was, for us, going along to political meetings and then saying, you know, we'll maybe take these posters around the Springfield Road barracks and stand outside it for an hour. You know, like a bunch of flipping idiots. Store Street, I remember, um, I wasn't at that particular one, but the people who were in Sinn Féin Youth with me, some of them here in ITDs were, you know, and they all got arrested because there was a, a scuffle with a Garda car. In Store Street, for example. So these type of things were happening in Barrack Street in Cork. Like I remember going down there at one point and having another protest. You know, Owen O'Brien and the two others, one who's now, a guy who's now dead, and I'll not name him, and another fella, once scaled the roof of the City Hall for the Searsha campaign. So there were there were lots of campaigns happening. There was a, a Searsha campaign, which was freeing what Champion called our POWs, you know, basically for release of, of political prisoners. There were demilitarization campaigns where Sinn Féin youth would generally go and sit on a hill in South Armagh. If you anybody around the world sees those pictures of the the army barracks basically carved into huge mountains across Fort Hill, across McLean and things like that. So quite an exciting time to be 
a young person, but also the fledgling kind of the the ceasefire, the first one had happened in 1994. So this would have been, you know, 96, 97, 98, 99. So you had the Good Friday Agreement, of course, coming through in 1998 as well. So that That's just the political side of things. I got involved in a radio station. You know, it was brilliant crack. I met Owen. I got involved with Sinn Féin Youth. I was elected to the national secretary position. I wasn't even at the, the Ardesh, which elected me. And I didn't find out until Bobby Story and Jerry Kelly sent me a pint to congratulate me in the Hercules bar. You know, so that I think I probably was around 17, 18, maybe at that point. Um, you know, so a very long winded way of saying, yes, you know, I, I was involved in Sinn Féin Youth. And then I, I continued involvement for a short period of time then with the party. Through until as a card carrier member until 2000, I went off to live in America and then I came back and, and worked in two election campaigns, one for Katrina Ryan and another in Northampton for a woman called Roisin McGurk. And then I left completely and that, that was me. Where were you over in the States? I lived in Los Angeles for a while. So I basically went over to stay with a woman who lived. I grew up with her. She she was older than me. She came me for saying it, but she lived next door to me and then she moved over there and set up a life for herself and had kids and she's still there actually she's in a different part of america now but it was great um we were in van nuys which is a mostly mexican area a lot of mexican immigrants who come in and you know i had a, a lovely mexican family down the street to gloria and javier and they had these two brilliant kids you know so i spent a lot of time with her during the day when pamela was working she taught me how to make cactus soup and spanish and mexican rice and i picked up a few words not not very many words but one or two curse words over there in spanish. <laughs> as they do, as they do. And, and there's a huge irish community over there as well and the, the good thing around that were you know there were a lot of people from different backgrounds that i wouldn't have necessarily met had i not yeah. been there but i was very homesick that was probably the first period of real isolation that I felt because I had cut myself off completely from republicanism. Certainly the States, obviously, for people who are kind of around our age, was real rite of passage. Uh, it's probably changed now to Australia and, and Canada. I know my, my well, I have family in Australia too, and I haven't managed to make it out there yet, but there are lots and lots and lots of us from, <clears throat> excuse me, my aunt and uncle emigrated in the 70s, as a lot of people did at that time to escape the conflict. So they moved actually to Adelaide. Um, so I family right across Adelaide, Perth. And with with your great uncle, Joe, did you fe- feel somewhat duty bound at all to be part of the movement? No, I don't think so. I mean, again, I've had a look in the book when I was writing the book at a lot of this because I, you know, I wanted to have a look at what point really this kind of happened. And I think it just happened organically. I, I subsumed everything around me. And, you know, it was a very... I was going to say interesting time. It was a very difficult time as well. But because I didn't have that political kind of leaning in the immediate household, but my grandparents, my father's parents did, you know, and it was a very political household. But like we, we it was also a very musical household. You know, uh, like my grandfather had people, you know, on contacts everywhere. People like from Christy Moore, the, the, the Barroids and Cork, they ran across community place called Between um, where he would be, basically take people up and down from kids from Belfast and adults who needed to escape the conflict. We had friends over, Dutch friends who came, people from all around the world, and they didn't have a telephone until the 1990s. So people would just turn up, you know, and like politicians, people who weren't politicians. And because he was kind of a very well-got man, you know, he he was good to people when they did come. Like, you know, they didn't have anything. They, my grandparents wouldn't have had two days to rub together, but they, they always opened up their home and you'd had brilliant like music sessions and things that would have happened on the spur of the moment. And it was just a, a really exciting place to be. My father has eight brothers and one sister, you know, and the ones who then married had kids of their own with kids, you know, tripping over each other. And it was very family orientated side of the family as well. But I you have a fine voice on you. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to shut me up. No, but out, out on the street again, you know, you had British soldiers. It was a, a household which supported the IRA. It had, you know, ex-prisoners within it next door, which people find hard to believe, you know, because people, I think, have this misconception that the conflict is solely sectarian or has been solely sectarian. It wasn't the case in my experience. Now, there is an awful lot of sectarianism in Northern Ireland. There still is, and in many ways, actually, in some places, it's worse. But my grandparents were IRA supporters and wouldn't have seen themselves as sectarian and I, I have to say you know I would agree with that assessment we went you know their next door neighbour Rossi was a woman who um 
the IRA came at one point in time and actually our Republicans came at one point in time and threatened to burn her out. And my grandmother went out and stood in front of her house and said, if you're going to burn her out, you can burn me out first. She was actually, she was a great, a great neighbour. They were great friends. Um, She was the grandmother of the Shukri brothers who later went on to, some, you know, Andre Shukri was jailed for UDA activity at one point. You know, they were a huge kind of loyalist family in the, the fabric of Northern Ireland. They lived next door to, to us in Ballamurphy, you know, so and the families, two families would still be friendly with each other. You know, we went off on holiday um, to a lovely man, um, I'm not naming, but he, he's a friend of ours who was, you know, his religion was Protestant. He had a caravan in Donegal. Off we went in the summer to stay in his caravan, you know, in Port Nabla. Great experience, you know, so we, we had kind of a whole mixture of people from different backgrounds and religions and whatever. And it, it was a, a great place to kind of be hanging around in. And that that mix, you know, was lethal to me then as a teenager who just came across republicanism and got stuck in that kind of cycle of it. You know? Yeah, because it, it, it's funny. Like it, it's not the, the first time I've heard this. And I think it's a very, very important point that quite possibly has been missed and is still missed or misunderstood by any of the governments that, that are involved. But it's not, yeah, it's not all about Catholic versus Protestant. It's not like about that at all. No, in many cases it is, Um, you know, so there, and there's ample evidence of this. There, there were sectarian attacks. There were some very disgraceful sectarian attacks. You know, I spent the week before last at the 30th anniversary for the Shankill bomb, for example, there is no other way of dressing that bomb up. But I don't care what excuse is used, but for the fact that it was placed in a Protestant area on a, sh- a very busy Saturday afternoon, you know, as people were doing their shopping, and there are, is no excuse. I don't think that anything is retrospectively excusable in relation to that. Not, not at all, but it is. A, I suppose it is. It is possible to be a Republican without being sectarian and that's the thing and, and vice versa i know because we interviewed donald donnelly a while back a prisoner 1082 uh, who escaped from crumlin road jail and and he you know again different time obviously or another generation back but i think within kind of five doors of him on his terrace there was three Protestant families all best of friends as well so you know i think for people outside yeah. of our it's important to kind of note that yeah it's it's far more complex than what it appears on the edge. It is, that although, I mean, even though there, there are ample, again, examples of sectarianism too, so if you look at the population shift, for example, there were an awful, or uh, I'll say there was an awful lot of, I mean, in the sense that there were an awful lot of incidents where um, there were a huge number of Presbyterian Protestants living in that catchment area of Ballamurphy originally when people started moving in. And one by one, they either moved out because they felt uncomfortable or they were told to move. Or in Rossi's case, for example, she stayed put, but she was threatened to be burnt out. So there were examples of that from Republicans or from people who purported to be Republican. And equally on the other side, you know, in other areas where Catholics were moved, for example, from Rathcool, Bobby Sands' family ended up in Twinbrick with a, a lot of other people. So those incidents do happen. And actually, it translates nowadays more so into, uh, there's a huge uptick, I think, in racist attacks because there's always this othering of people that goes on. You know, they, they used to have this kind of joke in Belfast where somebody said, are you Catholic or Protestant? And they'd say, oh, well, no, I'm Jewish. Are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? You know, so there, there automatically is that inbuilt, inbuilt sectarianism and in, like, you know, very rarely could someone not tell what religion you are from your name, for example, or even something as simple as the letter H, which Catholics tend to say H, Protestants will tend to say H. You know, it's a dead giveaway when you're you're up here. So, you know, no, I don't think that any ideology means that you're tied into a box of sectarianism. But I do think that there's a huge amount of people who, you know, unconsciously take it in, as there are probably everybody has an element of racism. And they won't like to admit it, but they probably do. No, I think you described it quite well, and, and it is. It's there. It's it's, it's unavoidable, and and that's just uh, that's just it. But we endeavour not to be and try to to not be judgmental of others. Now, so to tell us to so bring us up into the events that happened to you, which are are very difficult, and, and this is where I say you've been brave and courageous. The again for the listeners to give some context to how big a deal it possibly was for you to have even reported the the abuse even within the your local community but the risks that you undertook 
in doing that. And I know, I mean, it'd be interesting to, I suppose, hear how you came about to to make that decision and out your abuser, which I know is not a blood relative, but was a relative through marriage and an uncle through marriage. Maybe you can tell us a little bit. Yeah, well, just to just to be pedantic about things, because I love my facts. He actually wasn't an uncle through marriage. Um, he was living with my father's sister, and they didn't get married until after. I think, and didn't actually get married until nineteen ninety eight. Um, I was abused at the age of sixteen in a house in Ballymurphy, and that abuse continued over the period of a year. And in terms of disclosure, actually, I disclosed fairly early on, probably within two or three months, certainly. Anyway, so if you picture this. This would have been July, August 1997. I then certainly by that Christmas had already told two individuals and then a third one at a later stage, I think. So one of those women was Siobhan O'Hannon. Another woman was Sue Ramsey. And the third was a woman called Rosa McLaughlin. Um, so all of them, Rosa had been arrested and jailed uh, on remand for her part in a spy ring, an IRA spy ring. And she had admitted under questioning to being a member of the IRA. Siobhan O'Hannon was Jerry Adams' secretary, but she was also my second cousin. And that was the context in which I disclosed to her. And Sue Ramsey was on the periphery. I, I was always around Sue at, at one point because she was working in the same, volunteering in the same radio station that I was. So, you know, people went out for drinks at the end of the night. Sue was good crack to be around. So she had seen, Sue in particular had seen the man who abused me. He was called Martin Morris. He had got me one day the all intents and purposes to everybody else playfully by the throat in the fest West Belfast Festival office and she watched my face go white I mean I was fright and she asked me and I told her but in terms of disclosure to the other women it was more because I, I needed to get the you know I needed to spew out what was happening I thought I was pregnant at one point and I was very very frightened if we fast forward then um, one of those women went to the IRA behind my back and I was 16 at the point in time when I disclosed. When I was 18, the IRA then came to me and forced an investigation. They call it an investigation into my abuse. So they decided to take it upon themselves, albeit, you know, they, they waited for a period of two years or a year, depending on whenever the women, one woman went and told them. Um, and they, they explained this by saying that their volunteer, Martin Morris was a, a member of the IRA, my abuser, so they said he had rights as a volunteer and that they couldn't have someone who was abusing in their ranks and that they'd heard that I had put this into the public domain, their words. So basically, because I had disclosed, it was outside of their control and they were now then coming to take control of the situation. So they put me through a the first investigation last around six months and it culminated in them bringing me into a room with this man in terms of con what they call a confrontation to read our body language to see who's telling the truth, which sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, you know, it was a very, very frightening place to be. There was then a gap when they decided that it was inconclusive, that they weren't actually able to read people's body language after all. And then, so that would have been in April, March, April of the year 2000. And in July, the 23rd of July 2000, a very young uh, child, she just turned 13, I think, at that point in time, then said she had also been abused by this individual. And then another uh, young person said the same thing. So the IRA swooped back in again. So there, this was forced investigation number two. And at the end of that, the man disappeared out of the jurisdiction. We had no idea where he was. Uh, the IRA basically gave him money. He had access to a car and off he went. So for all of those years then in between, you know, I, I met with Jerry Adams from the year 2000 to 2006, I think, 2007 maybe. And I was finding it very, very difficult to cope. And I had just started getting my life back together and on an even keel. Again, you know, I, I worked really hard. My grandmother had died 2007. And from the period of 2007, 2008, 2009, I was really starting to stitch my life back together. And then I watched this documentary, which was on Ulster Television, which was Anya Adams, who was Jerry Adams' niece, talking about being abused by her father um, from the age of four. Her father, Liam Adams, is now dead. He was later convicted. Liam, at that point in time of the documentary, had gone on the run. So he had basically, and she was, you know, waving anonymity in this documentary to try to put pressure on the authorities to issue an arrest warrant to get him back into the jurisdiction. So that was her reason for speaking. And she detailed meetings where Jerry Adams had basically taken her to meet her abuser, his brother. um, And that was enough. 
to just it was a, a complete trigger for me I, I went to pieces very very quickly after watching that program because it triggered me but also because I had believed that I had been given a guarantee that there weren't any other cases like mine that there weren't other incidents where people had been brought face to face with their abuser and I was very keen during all of this time to try and ensure that a no other child was going to be abused and b I wasn't going to bump into my abuser and see that this would never be repeated again for anybody else so that was the reason that I had just then, I was absolutely, you know, very, very hurt, very distressed. I was apoplectic with rage, you know, also, I think. And I then went to my parents and said, I'm going to do something about this. And I, I want to make a complaint to the police. And to all credit to them, you know, they didn't say stop, think about it. You know, they just said, look, if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. We had always had a pact. There were there were three victims, and well, there were more than three victims, but there were three victims on record, um, who had always said, you know, if one goes to the police, the likelihood is we'll all all three of us will will go. So I had to, you know, I went and, and spoke to the two other. I have to use the word alleged because the man was later found not guilty. The two other alleged victims also. And my feeling at the time was that I needed the public protection. So it, it was a dicey thing to do, you know, in order for me to be able to speak to the police about my abuse. I was also going to have to explain to them why I had not come forward in previous years. And, you know, one of those reasons was there was an IRA investigation that they sought to involve themselves in my life. And, you know, people, abuse victims will always be asked, why did you not disclose sooner? Or when you did disclose, who did you tell and who knew about this? And is there any corroborating evidence? So because the IRA had basically, you know, forced themselves in to my life, there was no way of me ever being able to give a police statement without saying what the IRA, you know, had done. Um, And people from, you know, family, extended family in the community found that very, very hard to understand, you know. From their point of view, they felt, well, why can't you just go and name your abuser? Why do you have to name all of these other people too? To be as clear as I can be, the only thing that I could say to them is, well, do you want me to go into court with a gag around my mouth and my two hands tied up behind my back? Because the minute a barrister asks me who knew about this and I don't mention anybody in the IRA, my credibility is shot to pieces, you know, and this guy's never getting convicted. So at that point in time, I wasn't even sure whether the police were ever even going to be able to find him. And they did. They found him very quickly. But before I was able to go to the police, then I needed to speak to a journalist. And I, I knew that if I put it into a newspaper, I would have a level of public protection because people would know about it that I wouldn't have if I if I hadn't done that. And like that was in the year 2009, um, it was December 2009, again into January. So I gave the interview in December. It appeared in January and just before the article broke in the newspaper in true fashion for my life. I discovered then I was pregnant, unexpectedly pregnant, um, with my daughter, who who is the absolute delight of my life now. But at that point in time, you know, you just put your life in the the pages of a national newspaper. You're going to the place to report an abuse case, and you're discovering now you're you're having a baby on top of it. So the stress was immense. Um, and that's what I did. I, I reported it, and I spent four years then in the criminal justice system before the case was eventually collapsed. And this is years of having to cope and live with this since the abuse began and then and then ended um how does one cope emotionally you know though that that period and we'll, we'll get on to talk about then you know the, the the trial and whatnot later on but you must have felt so alone you know like you would have had from what i could see you know you, you come into an organization you expect some degree of protection from that organization. You're part of a bigger kind of family thing where, you know, listen, if something happens, we look after you. So when you go to meet with the, with the IRA, you expect they're going to at least give you a fair hearing and take into account uh, what you said. And then when, when you come uh, then to the police, it's the same thing again. Who, like, how, how do you... Okay, one must lose an awful lot of trust. Then how do you regain trust in humanity, full stop? Well, it was slightly different for me from from just the way you've described it there. First of all, remember, I didn't make a complaint to the IRA. They they forced themselves into my life. You know, one of those women went and told them and then they waited until I turned 18 and they come to me. So I was I thought the IRA were going to kill me. You know, that's where I was. I didn't expect a fur here and I thought I was going down a hole. You know, and I, to the point where I actually wrote a note, I left this note for my mother under my pillow and said this, you know, the IRA have done this, asked this person who this woman is, the, the woman who'd come to, to take me to this first meeting, you know. um, 
And I, I spent this kind of cutting, you know, next load of months in this kind of cat and mouse thing where I was trying to outsmart the IRA in my head. So, yes, I came from an extended IRA family. When the IRA come looking for you as an entity, it's a completely different thing. And I was racing back through my brain thinking, have I looked at somebody the wrong way? Have I said something wrong to people? And that's because I lived in this totalitarian enclave, if you like, where the IRA controlled everything. You know, and at that point then, even when they then when they came in to discuss a matter deeply, deeply personal to me, um, something which they had no business in doing, but decided that they, you know, were gonna play judge, jury and executioner over it. You know, and that's not over egging it, that's exactly what they were doing. When they came, they effectively then also took over my mind and my body because they were deciding when these meetings were happening and then I had to be there. You know, so all of that I mean, I, actually, I had just finished my A-levels when the IRA had come to me. I had just started university. So I was very, very young, uh, mostly, but young, you know. Um, And yes, there was a, a, an intense period of isolation rather than loneliness, I think, because I was told I wasn't allowed to speak to, it, to anybody about it. Um, And then even when it finished, the first investigation finished, and I always use the inverted commas with the word investigation, like it was a kangaroo court, a prolonged one. When I then tried to find a counsellor to speak to, we couldn't even find a counsellor who was free from Republican control. And that was, you know, that kind of indicates maybe it wasn't. We eventually found one in the middle of Lenadoon, which, you know, but she was an English woman. She had an English accent and she had no awareness on nor was she under the control of any Republican movement. And also important to say, like, I was never in the IRA. You know, I was in Sinn Féin Youth. It's a very different thing than than being a member of an organisation. Um, I was asked, you know, and in fact, an actual factory, you know, very, very quickly, um, just before the abuse started, I was actually asked by my abuser to move guns for the IRA and refused. But that was just an extra frisson, which, you know, frightened the life clean out of me then when, when the abuse started. So, yeah, I mean, I'll waffle around the houses before I answer your question. It was very isolating. I think it was a very scary point in time. How do you cope? You know, you get up and every day and you exist really through life. Um, and there were an awful lot of days where I was zombified completely. I mean, my counselling notes actually exist from the year 2000 and they're they're detailed, thank God, because, you know, it's an extra level of proof that I have that this happened. Um, It refers to the IRA investigation. It refers to the abuse there. You know, not all of it is in the public domain. Some of it's horrendous. Um, but there are things, you know, where I was saying, like, I, I can't feel anything. I, it would take me to go to a mountain and have somebody beat me over the head with a baseball bat to feel anything. I mean, that's where I was at the time. There are remarks from the counsellor in her handwriting where she says, this woman, you know, this she's looking extremely tired today, you know, she, where she gave me advice about going to see a GP. I was suicidal. You know, I just couldn't cope properly. And I was also then trying to get through life as normally as possible in an abnormal environment where a radio station was happening twice a year, you know, where that felt kind of safe and it was a distraction and you were able to go and lose yourself in a recording studio or turn a microphone on or, you know, there were all sorts of different things, um, you know, that you did. You just, you went from one to the next, you know, West Belfast, one of those places where there was always kind of something happening. So, you know, you try and exist to the best of your ability um, that you can. And even now, I mean, you know, I don't live a very normal life at the minute. I haven't done so in a very long time, you know, but, you know, I, I'm sitting here doing an interview with you at the minute. It doesn't mean that I, you know, I don't have things that I, I need to be doing or that don't hurt the times or, you know, you just do them. And I think for an awful lot of people, that's that's life, you know. A lot of people, but some people don't don't come out on the right side of it, I suppose. I mean, the, there's I mean, I don't have the scientific proof now anyhow around trauma, both you know, mental trauma leaves physical scars just like physical trauma does as well. Completely. You know, I mean, I, I spent a long time, you know, I went, I spent a short period of time in a psychiatric unit. You know, I self-harmed for a long, you know, long enough period of my life. Um, Not just in terms of, I used to, use needles and things like that to cut skin but you know not just in terms of that but even in terms of like I, you know when I was younger I probably drank too much you know I smoked blow you know you, you did all of the things that teenagers do when they're rebelling except I just kept doing them because they were a good escape at the time you know and I didn't actually probably get my shit together you know until maybe around 2006 2007 where I started coming out of that um 
nonsense that I had been involved in. But I think you just look, you do what you need to do to survive. My grandmother, my mother's mother, both my grandmothers were, were great women, but my mother's mother in particular had an awful lot of trauma. She lost children in very tragic circumstances, one in a house fire. Um, she had children lost in infancy. She lost another son in a motorbike accident and another one, Um, you know, a few years later who spent a long time in the life support machine. You know, she lost her husband. Her husband took a heart attack Um, and then subsequently died. So she had all of this. Uh, her brother also um, had a, a tragic death. All of this kind of came into the mix for her. And, she, you know, I say in the, at the start of the book, one of the lessons which I, I took from her without it, her even ever having to tell me was you get up and you keep going and you never lose your sense of humour, you know, no matter what is happening. And I think that the IRA, ironically, probably did me. They did an awful lot of damage, but they probably did me a favour too because there's nothing in my life at this point in time that will ever be worse than what happened then and what happened with the abuse, you know. So you kind of great learn the great things, you know, things can be horrendous and terrible and, you know, death in particularly, particular is, is terrible. But people go through things like grief every day of the week and they eventually come through, you know. It's what we do with that pain, yeah. Yeah. That- moves us on and, and helps us evolve and the RUC is what it was the police force in Northern Ireland uh, for uh, quite a large portion of, of your life which then became the PSNI after the Good Friday Agreement and what was it like uh, being interviewed by I suppose a force that you know you, you would have watched and riots and stuff like that like how, how was it for you to have to to drive in i know the book you, you drove in through the barriers uh into into the police station and then having to sit and face two psni officers well I, it wasn't the first time that i'd been in a barracks so that was the first thing it was my first time in garnerville um but i had prior to that around 2007 had cause to report incidents to the police um i had unfortunately being subjected to some pretty horrendous stalking behaviour and actually I probably shouldn't say this but I'll tell you this story this is kind of a bit of a tangent but you know I was getting notes put under my door I had had these horrendous and they were horrendous phone calls uh, voicemails left on my phone at the time and you know I had good friends around me we we lived in these kind of block of flats which was a bit like a youth hostel you know and we we all kind of lived in and out of each other's flats and I went to the police to report it because it was so frightening that I you know I thought my abuser was actually back I mean that that was the the reason and I disclosed the abuse to the police then and you know they did nothing with it so that that isn't on the public record but it actually I went to the police ombudsman then uh, because there was a person interviewed their phone number was traced and then nothing happened the police did nothing with it and the police ombudsman um recommended disciplinary action against the the police. And in actual fact, uh, a policeman came back and apologized a number of weeks ago to okay. me over that particular yeah. instance. So that's that's a so it wasn't my first time in, you know, I had been in I, I was in the company of a, a young woman who had been uh, a solicitor as well and a barrister actually to also report a suspected money laundering operation, I think around two thousand and seven where um I don't want really want to give too many details into it. But again, the place we give it an awful lot of evidence over at that point in time, we felt that people were being exploited uh, within that community. And we set about gathering, you know, bank statements off residents and, and all sorts of stuff. And it went off to the place to investigate. And remember the RUC, the, like the PSNI pattern changes started coming in around the early 2000s, I think. And then then you did the commission argument around 2005, six, I think. By the time 2010 came around, yeah, it, it, I probably didn't have much faith that the police would do anything with the allegations, but I wanted to put them on record. As I say, I wasn't sure that they were actually going to be able to find my um, abuser, but they did, you know, and, and in credit to them, the, the police man and woman who worked on the abuse case from the get-go treated me with respect, as they did with the other victims like we, we were treated grand you know you go in you get soft furnishings in Garnerville that used to be called the car suite so they have video in the corner of the room and they basically record your statement on video I'm correct I think in saying that that was an all-nighter as well wasn't it that well yeah end of the early hours of the morning I mean I I got there mid-afternoon and 
we kept going until the tapes ran out. And then I, I went back and gave subsequent statements. Look, the, the police evidence file actually, and this was just my words, is like this, when you start putting all the pages together, it's probably this big. As I say, I, I don't find it difficult to, to talk. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was difficult. You know, you were being asked very intimate kind of details of your life. And I was also pretty sick from the pregnancy. It was the early stages of pregnancy. So it wasn't ideal. Um. Well, it had to be done. And you also had to, I mean, again, come back to what I, I said at the beginning about resilience. Like this is all happening in an age of social media. Well, social media is becoming very popular. So those walls or Chinese walls um, between you and the IRA community and whatnot, you know, they're they're very thin and yeah. you know, you're very vulnerable when you're putting stuff on the internet now. Well, I mean, at that point in time, I was contending with an awful lot of factors. You know, we had the family suspicion around whether the police would treat us properly. And, you know, there were some people like uh, one of the policemen turned up one time to a person's house and to hand over um, a piece of paper, basically. And the door was just slammed in their face, you know, and they rang me afterwards. And like I'd spent, you know, we were in our third year or something by this point in time. You know, so I knew these people kind of as well as you would know someone from, you know, giving them the details of your life and then turning up to court. And, you know, even, like at that point in time, that was a bit of an eye opener for me because I kind of felt that, you know, they had all been treated, you know, I wasn't like they weren't being wined and dined, but they, you know, people were polite to them when they were dealing with them. And I, I didn't like that reaction um, from people irrespective of what their views of the place were. So. And that probably harks back, like my mother was always very strict with us in terms of being polite to people, even if you didn't like them, you know, conduct yourself properly. So there were things like that you were contending with. You were contending then with also family members who didn't want the IRA mentioned, you know, you weren't going to give evidence against the IRA in court. The statements were edited. The police messed up in terms of getting people to sign edited statements before they, you know, ever should have even looked at the issue. Then you had the periphery you know the people within the community who knew that Morris had been lifted and Morris was lifted first so people were okay I think with that um and then the a year later two years later the IRA charges were brought against the other four individuals who were also found not guilty because they denied it and, and the cases then took a, a different turn and when that started happening I could see this on the internet I could see people starting to comment but I was hearing it you know coming back from on the street as well um, and I was also contending with being in an abusive uh, relationship too. So, you know, things were just not very good at that point in time. And then you were dealing with the the threats. So I moved um, around 2012. So this would have been two years into the court case, very short notice, you know, within two weeks, I decided, look, we need to get out of here, myself and my child. You know, things are just becoming a wee bit too uncomfortable here. And I don't want anything happening to her. And we went out and moved to Derry for a year and a half and then moved back when the trials were, were due to start. So Porrick Wilson was one of the people who was arrested in my case. And then he got also arrested in another case. And what happened was Shimfi and then turned up en masse outside NOC headquarters with placards. And they're very prominent people, you know, prominent MLAs turned up alongside people like Sean Kelly, for example, who had been arrested for the Shankle bomb. So, I could see the sea of people standing with placards, you know, free Podrick Wilson now outside Knock headquarters. And I was then thinking, you know, you know, my mother still lives in West Belfast. My parents were still living in West Belfast at that point. You know, they all know that I'm giving evidence here in this case. And, and Wilson is one of the, the accused. You know, what's going to happen here? And then I had a, a discussion with a legal person who had bumped into someone um, at an event. And he, uh, rang me, he, he rang me and said, get out of Belfast, you know, within the next 24, 48 hours, go, you're not, you're not safe. So, so how does Sinn Féin, I suppose, you know, square, square that circle um uh, around you? Because like, you know, like people can obviously tell lies and whatnot. And, you know, there has been instances, of course, where people have reported abuse where it didn't happen. But very, very few, less than 2%. Okay, but but the point is, you know, for for somebody like yourself in the position that you were in, and then the lengths that you had to go to, what you ended up being dragged through, and clearly 
you're not telling lies. And for, you know, the likes of the leadership to row behind, you know, your abuser uh, and still to this day, you know, they're, I mean, how, how does that, that must really hurt? Well, they would see it slightly differently. So they, they would see it as them being uh, supportive of an abuser being brought to justice. Now, I have a slightly different take on that because I've read the Starmer report and I experienced four years of a court case where there were an awful lot of people who could have given corroborative evidence around that individual and didn't. Um, and that, for me, was the test. At the point in time when a child abuser, when it came to convicting a child abuser, and people could have given evidence, corroborating evidence around disclosure, you know, they could have given evidence around things that they witnessed, what his behaviour was like. The IRA people who conducted the investigation could have certainly given evidence in relation to that aspect of things. And Sinn Féin, Adams, could have given evidence. In fact, he gave a, it took him months, actually. He was a, he was asked, um, to, actually, they put a request in to question him and his, he, he refused it and he gave a statement through his solicitor months down the line. And I know what's in that statement. You know, it's very brief. Um, and it, it basically says, you know, oh, I didn't know her very well. You know, I knew her, but I didn't know her very well. We never discussed the rape allegations and things like that. You know, which was bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's very clear if you read the book, you know, and the, the book Rough Base deals with the, the first section of it is the IRA investigation. The second section of the book deals with the political fallout, you know, the court cases and, and what happened after. All you have to do is look at the statements that Jerry Adams has made on record to look at the fact that, you know, excuse my French here, but he's a lying bastard on this issue. You know, and I don't think I've been as forthright around that, but that, you know, that's what he is. And, you know, he can sue me if he wants to, um, because I have the evidence, you know, we'll, yeah. let's, let's take it head on if that's what he wants to do. But how do they square the circle? You'd have to ask Jim Fein that. But from my point of view, if you, this is a party which says that it stands up for females. No, I don't think it does. I don't think it stands up for abuse victims when you look at how they've treated me. I think they clamp down to protect their own reputation, the reputation of the Republican movement. I don't think they give a shit about child abuse or, or anybody you know, who got in their way in relation to that. I certainly think that the treatment of me on record you know, demonstrates over and over how appallingly they dealt with this issue. Um, and I also think that this is a party who now say, you know, they're for feminism, for example. No, I think they're a bunch of hypocrites, you know, because if you look again in the book, I've documented things like what Mary Lou MacDonald has said on the case, what other Sinn Féin representatives have said on the case, and what they haven't said. So, you know, what they have done is they've said, oh, we believe she was abused. They have yet and have never actually said, we believe there was an IRA investigation into that abuse and they know, Sinn Féin know without a shadow of a doubt there was because their own party offices were used in some instances by the IRA to actually question me. So that's why I will always say they're corporately responsible for this. You know, they know. And it would be so easy for them now at this point, like because everybody knows that it happened. So we have this huge big elephant in the room where Sinn Féin just refused to admit it and everybody goes, we all know it did. You know, but actually I think it's very important at this point in time that they actually do come clean because still what you have is an abuse victim and her family, you know, who are saying this is what happened and everybody knows it to be true, but Sinn Féin will still kick me around in the public domain and allow me to be re-abused online without actually correcting the record. And that's a pretty appalling indictment in terms of how they treat people. And it is an appalling indictment and an indication of how they will treat people, I think, in government in the South, because that's where they're moving towards. And the title of the book, Rough Beast, it deals, it's a, from a W.B. Yeats poem, uh, The Second Coming, which was written in the aftermath, you know, of war. And it talks about this rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. The analogy that we used in, in relation to the title of Rough Beast was not just about, you know, this conjuring up of, of rape, for example, but it was also about looking at how Sinn Féin would behave once they got into government in the south of Ireland and I spent you know the last chapter looking at things like that and I think that I said this you know at the launch Olivia O'Leary very kindly launched the book uh, for me a number of weeks ago in, in Dublin she's a fantastic uh, broadcaster she had said a number of things you know to whom do, do Sinn Féin owe 
this debt of responsibility? Is it to their own warriors or is it to the children who were abused? And I think that was a really succinct way of putting it. And she did it much more eloquently than I can. But equally, then, you know, from my point of view, in terms of how you treat the most vulnerable, I think it's a huge test of character, not just in terms of individuals, you know, but also how movements treat when they're faced with the most vulnerable, how governments do it in power, you know, and particularly how the Republican movement has done it. And, you know, they, not only did they not treat me very well, but they tried to trample all over me in a very public manner. And that's where my stubbornness kicked in. Like, I was never going to allow that to happen without, you know, putting up a fight. And I've unfortunately had to spend the last number of years fighting over and over and over to get an acceptance. And I think that what the book has done is it lays it all out for me to say, I don't have anything to prove. You know, I, I already know what happened to me, but it allows other people a little snapshot into how these people behave, you know, and I think that's very important to do. In in that respect, I suppose it somewhat squares the, the circle for you. And, you know, you're still obviously living with this, but to look at you, I suppose you don't, like there is still an air of grace, I suppose, about you might be a good way of describing it, and a certain calm. You know, so you've obviously managed again to accept and move through a process internally uh, that allows you to to move on and 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 hopefully you know is is this almost a a code or a full stop for you to be able to get on now with the the rest of your life and and leave some of this after you mm. or is this well I have Asperger's so I was diagnosed with Asperger's in two thousand and seventeen and that probably actually has saved me in a, a kind of ironic way um you know I think I found it very frightening not being able to work out particular feelings way back then in terms of trauma and whatever else but it probably cushioned me a wee bit and you know it has actually probably been a bit of a godsend in a, a roundabout way so that's probably where the calmness thing or that air of calmness comes in it doesn't mean that I'm particularly calm but I, I just kind of I'm slightly more controlled than than you know, I read cues differently, you know, put me in a, a very noisy environment and it's a different matter. You know, and I write in the book about how difficult I found walking up and down the corridors of Leinster House, for example, just because of the bustle, you know. um, So I, I learn now how to deal with things in a much better way in terms of taking care of myself. You know, like if I'm having a, a particularly stressful day, I won't come in and put on radio and TV and have the phone on at the same time you know I'll de-stress and I take the time to do that sometimes it isn't always possible but I also have a 13 year old teenager who, who you know whose introduction into the world really came at the worst possible time in terms of stress and she has been the saviour and absolute saviour in relation to my life like she just put me on a completely different path I had somebody else to worry about other than myself I had to really work very hard to try to keep her life as normal as possible in a very abnormal environment like but you know that we one was moved uh repeatedly for the first number of years of her life she she actually didn't have time to settle because she was moved from house to house and part of that was because we were under threat from an individual or individuals you know so she has as normal a life as possible in a very different kind of way you know she we live in in northern ireland she goes to a presbyterian Sunday school she takes herself off the bible club she plays GAA she doesn't know whether she's blown up her stuff you know she's she's just involved in everything and she's friends from all walks of life from all races from all religions and that was really important for me for her to experience that you know and um I think that's probably one of the better things I've managed to do in life is to, to bring up a child who to all intents and purposes seems rounded enough and I you know I will continue to do that so no I don't think there's any kind of recipe to it I don't think there's any grace around it like you know if you fire me up or you cross me <laughs> I wouldn't be the easiest person to be around and you know I love arguments like everybody I suppose so um but like you know it's a false environment I'm, I'm on zoom at the minute having a fairly measured discussion yeah. and I've learned now how to keep my cool a wee bit better than what I used to when I was younger and, you know, the, the Northern Ireland of today, I suppose this is more into um, history as such. How, how do you observe, I suppose, the the attitudes or as is it is it a, you know, a country coming together or is it being strained and pulled away? Uh, and does, you know, would there be a risk in your own estimation of, I suppose, the situa current situation deteriorating? 
I think it has deteriorated post Brexit to an extent, but I don't think you know. I think we you will always see pockets of that probably here. Um, but I it's a it's a much better place. And look, you know, we couldn't have had any worse than 30, 40 years of conflict where there is not one day in the calendar where someone hasn't been killed. You know, so we're at a point now where um, that isn't a key feature of everyday life. And I think that that is a very, very positive thing, you know, not just for my own daughter, but for other people her age here, here and I growing up, not knowing what that ball of intensity is is like. You know, I think everybody here just kind of steeled themselves and got through life from day to day because there was always a bit of an element of playing Russian roulette with your life. You know, people went to bars, got blown up. People went to the Belfast city centre, got blown up or some other, you know, towns, cities. Um, People got shot. You know, all types of awful, despicable, inhumane things happened to people. And, you know, people, people did them to the other people. I think the level of liberalism has actually increased which is a good thing also it's a, a much less conservative kind of society than than what it was you know from my own point of view in terms of my own politics that's a good thing that whole concept of kind of social democracy is good um but i think there's an awful long way to go um peace hasn't actually reached an awful lot of those inner city areas which have always traditionally been neglected and that's why you will see pockets of violence so if you go to the lower shankle for example you know, it is much improved from what it was in the 70s, 80s, 90s, but there is still an awful long way to go. You know, very um few young Protestant males from that area, for example, will pass the 11 plus. Um, they don't have the same opportunities that their counterparts here living in the Malone Road, for example, will have. Um, their second, third, fourth generation unemployed in areas like that and in Craigan and Bogside, the Northwest has a huge problem in terms of underinvestment. Um, you know, university places aren't always available to everybody. We have huge problems in terms of infrastructure and it isn't getting any better without a government here. Um, so, you know, it has its problems. But largely, I think that that whole area of people treating each other more respectfully um, probably is one area in which things have improved. It doesn't look like it all the time when you turn on the television. Oh, no. Oh, no, but I, I... Behind closed doors, people people will get on you know because yeah, i've been to belfast a few times in in recent years and you know i've been doing kind of the last number of historian episodes have had quite a focus on on ireland and i'm, I'm particularly interested in in northern ireland um myself possibly from you know just the relationships and things were going on like i had you know republic enough grandmother and, and a Protestant step-granddad, you know, so all, all that kind of stuff, but it has, it has me interested in it. And from talking to others, it seems, yeah, that seems to be everybody's uh, opinion on, on where things are at. But if you're coming at, to Belfast from a touristic point of view, uh, you know, you wouldn't know anything ever happened as such. Do you know what I mean? And other people are all very friendly and, you know, it's got that real, um, I suppose, there's a there's some bit of a rural vibe because again I was from a city slicker from Dublin moved to to Leitrim and I love the country vibe and it's a little bit of that in Belfast you know people mm-hmm. have a bit of time they'll take time to talk to you uh, and uh, you'll get a you get a far better level of service and restaurants and whatnot than you will in Dublin that's for sure you've probably been in it more than I have it isn't entirely safe to be for me to be down there in about parts of Belfast I do you know from time to time I'll go in but actually. I've probably spent more time in Dublin in the last six months than what I have. I think yeah. I've been in Belfast city centre maybe once, you know, but I, we, we don't live in Belfast anymore. So, you know, it's just one of the that's the hazards of going public about a case like this, you know, no, you that's it. Yourself yeah. off. but you know, I, I think there are, I was actually in maybe last year or the year before I took a friend to play drag queen bingo um, down in Union Street. So they, they have this club, which is, um, you know, been there forever. It's a very, very small kind of club in Union Street, uh, just off the Kremlin, where they have, um, it's called Tranny Bingo. So they basically have this drag queen bingo where they, they come in, you know, so it's hilarious, actually, a really good night out. So I took a friend in there and just all around that cathedral quarter is so much improved and it's really good to see, you know, so. Yeah. um, I wish we had kind of more of a cultural element to things, you know, there are shop fronts now, which kind of are looking a wee bit shabby and, I actually wrote a piece for the Sunday Independent about 
this maybe this time last year about walking around and seeing the state of some of the the you know urine snaking out of alleys and you know rubbish kind of built up and shop fronts that aren't there anymore and that whole underinvestment. But again, with COVID, you know, once the the pandemic hit, an awful lot of businesses lost their um livelihood. You know, so. Thank you so much. You've no been problem. very generous uh, with your time, Maria. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm really glad you got this this opportunity. I hope the book sells well for you. And historian yeah. listeners, the name again is Rough Beast. Uh, I think you know it has a lot to say. It's not just about your story. I think there's there's a there's a wider you know about well obviously about maybe who might vote for the next general election uh, in the South, but certainly matters to be considered seriously. Um, um, I hope you've managed, you know, even through the writing um, to find some bit of peace for yourself uh, in, in all that maelstrom. Um, it's been a, yeah, I mean, yeah, what a life, what a life you, you've, you've experienced uh, an awful lot of things that most people wouldn't go through and credit to you to, to bring a child up and uh, insulate them from as much of that as possible. And I think that's what life's all about. If quite don't pass on the stuff that we've had to endure at times, you know, that's it. Um, so with that, thank you very much. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Good to talk. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support. We're delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here